from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to this Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Charles Grant, the CR's director, and I'm here today with my colleague Sam Lowe, who's a senior research fellow, to talk about where, where we've got to with the Brexit process, in particular the Northern Ireland Protocol issues. But, uh, but to those people who are bored of talking only about the protocol, be reassured. We're going to talk about other issues too. We're going to touch on financial services, data, and even the carbon border adjustment mechanism as potential big snags in the EU-UK relationship ahead. But let's start with the protocol. As we speak, there are talks going on between the EU and the British government on how to resolve the differences that the two sides have on it. Uh, the British have complained that as, as it's currently written, the protocol that they signed up to two years ago is, uh, is, is not working very well, that it's disrupting trade patterns, it's causing economic problems, it's socially disruptive, and it's creating political problems too. And it does seem to be the case that about half the people in Northern Ireland have problems with it. And Mr. Sefcovich, the user negotiator, has acknowledged that in its current form, it doesn't work very well and needs to be modified. So he's come up with a plan for modifying it to reduce some of the disruption at borders. But is this going to be enough, Sam, to keep the British happy? How, how are the British reacting to Mr. Sefcovich's proposals? I think one of the issues we have here is that it is not always easy to tell whether Lord Frost, the UK's negotiator, is actually attempting to resolve problems in respect of goods flowing from Great Britain to Northern Ireland with a desire to find a solution to, to reduce friction and, and keep unionists on side, or if he is using this as an opportunity to relitigate some of the issues that were discussed at great length during the withdrawal agreement, including the specific role for the European Court of Justice in uh, enforcing some elements of the protocol. And the reason that this causes some concern, I think, particularly on the EU side, is that it is well known that Lord Frost doesn't like the protocol, and there is this suspicion that he and Boris Johnson signed up to it with, uh, with the intention of reneging on it as quickly as possible. And, and I think that suspicion is, is, is justified. I think that is exactly what happened. However, it is also true at the same time that the protocol does need to be made to work better, that there is disruption in respect of goods flowing from Great Britain to Northern Ireland beyond perhaps what could have been reasonably expected at the time, particularly with Michel Barnier, the then EU negotiator, saying that such controls could be de-traumatised. So there is a need to find a solution here, but the question still is whether Frost actually wants to find one or if he just wants to keep finding Brussels and is using Northern Ireland as leverage to try and achieve some broader objectives. It seems that on the EU side, they're trying to be helpful on the practical difficulties at the border. They've come up with various proposals for reducing the bureaucracy at the border of goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. But they're not, as, as, as far as I can see, uh, giving much ground on the, on the, the frost demand that the 
court of justice be taken out of the equation when it comes to policing the protocol? And having spoken recently to EU negotiators, I don't think the EU is going to class that because it's not going to give in on this one. Um, it, it, it regards that the policing of the single market is something that has to be done throughout the EU, wherever the single market applies. They believe they've, as it were, given a gift to Northern Ireland of allowing it to stay in the single market for goods in order to avoid the necessity for border controls on goods passing between the North and the South of Ireland. But as a result of allowing Northern Ireland to stay in the single market, they think it has to be policed by the Court of Justice. And no other part of the single market is not policed by the Court of Justice. And if you talk to EU officials about whether they could find some sort of compromise on the court, they are rather unyielding, I must say. They, they also point out on pr practical terms, they've talked to people in Northern Ireland and who, who, about the operation of the protocol. And they report back that businesses and most people in Northern Ireland don't seem too bothered by the role of the court. They also say that if they, even if they wanted to reform the protocol to get rid of the, the court and reduce the role of the court, the Council of Ministers would not give them a mandate to, to make that change. The Court of Justice itself might strike down any agreement that reduced its own role. So I don't, I don't really see the EU moving on that. But do, do you think there could be a compromise on the role of the Court of Justice, Sam? I think it is a slightly bizarre one insofar as this is not an issue that's been raised by uh, Northern Irish businesses. And it hasn't even been really raised by... Northern Irish politicians up until recently when Lord Frost uh, made it an, a, an issue again. And I think it's very difficult to argue that the presence of the Court of Justice has led to any trade diversion or societal disruption in Northern Ireland, which is the framing that the UK uses to justify seeking changes elsewhere. So, so, so when the EU approach this, I think it's understandable they think, well, this is something that we negotiated in the withdrawal agreement. It's, it wasn't hidden. It was there in writing, and you signed up to this. And unlike perhaps the questions around how it's the goods border is implemented on the ground, where there was ambiguity, where there were decisions left to a future joint committee, that just wasn't the case for the Court of Justice. So it's just viewed as Frost trying to get rid of something he doesn't like and using Northern Ireland... And, and some of the concerns there uh, uh, as leverage to do so. But then to the question of whether a solution can be found, I think that ultimately Frost and Johnson will have to back down uh, on their absolutist stance that there can be no role for the Court of Justice. But it is possible that the role of the Court of Justice is limited somewhat in that it no longer need have direct jurisdiction in Northern Ireland and disputes will be subject to independent arbitration. But as is the case for the rest of the withdrawal agreement, the Court of Justice's opinion would be taken into account by arbitrators in the event the dispute is over the interpretation of EU law, which, as you said, will continue to apply in Northern Ireland uh, because it remains within the EU single market for goods. So that's the possible compromise. It just becomes a political question of whether Frost and Johnson, the Prime Minister, want to accept it? Well, I don't see any signs of the EU being willing to accept such a compromise, but supposing for the sake of argument they did, could the Joint Committee make actually, actually change parts of the protocol without it needing a new mandate from the Council of Ministers, without the need for ratification of the whole thing all over again? I haven't really thought too deeply about the exact process, but my, my general approach when it comes to questions of legal process throughout the course of the Brexit negotiations has been if the EU 
is happy collectively, and I use the EU as, a collect as collectively insofar as I mean the council member states, uh, the European Parliament is being kept on board and also the Commission is happy. If they are happy, then they will find a way to achieve what they want. So, so if we get to a situation under which the EU is happy with the changes that have been made, even in respect to the Court of Justice, I don't see process getting in the way of achieving that. However, process is a useful negotiating tool in that, in that when the, while the UK is just proposing things that will never be palatable to the EU, they can always say, well, part of the reason we can't even countenance this is that we could never, we could never get the process sorted. Right, right. Of course, the British government is at least implying and sometimes saying directly that if it doesn't get what it wants on the court on other issues, such as getting uh, Northern Ireland out of, out of the direct purview of the EU state aid regime, it may well invoke Article 16. Now, what, actually, what does that mean, Sam? If, if the UK or indeed the EU invokes Article 16, which is, 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 it, is it Armageddon? Does the world come to an end or what, what actually happens if, that, if, if Article 16 is used? So the frustrating answer to this question is it depends. Article 16 is a provision within the Northern Ireland Protocol and is perfectly legitimate for either the EU or the UK to use it. And what does using it entail? It allows either, country, either party, the EU or the UK, to suspend elements of the agreement in the event that there is sustained trade diversion or societal disruption or environmental degradation or the like. It's, it's a safeguard clause. So the question is, A, does the UK trigger Article 16 or not? And if we, let's assume it does, the second question then is, okay, so what does it do? So does it use Article 16 uh, and as, as justification to scrap the entire Northern Ireland Protocol. Because if it were to do so, I think it would struggle to justify it legally because it wouldn't be proportionate. But okay, if it does that, then I imagine the EU's response would be quite explosive because the, the UK would be de facto daring the EU to either put up a border on the island of Ireland or between Ireland and the rest of the EU. And I think we could see the EU, legally or not, uh, reimposing tariffs on lots of goods, suspending other elements of the TCA. We're talking trade war quite quickly. But let's assume that the UK isn't going to go down the sort of self-immolation route and instead would use Article 16 as perhaps cover to implement the protocol as it thinks it should be implemented, which would still see controls on goods entering Northern Ireland. It would just lead to the approach changing to things being done differently. In such a circumstance, whilst the EU might respond uh, instantly in some areas, its actual ability to respond quickly is limited because any safeguards it puts in place have to be proportionate to the damage done. And it's difficult to quantify the damage of changing how you apply the protocol, uh, unlike if you were to scrap it altogether. So you end up, I think, then in just a protracted period of negotiation and arbitration, where, of course, the EU will make lots of threats. Uh, it will draw up a hit list of, of, of product, UK products to apply tariffs to. But actually, we just move on uh, to uh, more negotiation, more process, more discussion, uh, and the like. So, so, so yes, Article 16 can mean, mean lots of things. And what really matters is what the UK chooses to do uh, in practice and, and how the EU uh, perceives uh, the legitimacy of those actions. 
Of course, we'd all like to know if the UK really is going to invoke Article 16 or not. And I think the answer is we, don't, we just don't know at this stage. For what it's worth, I put this question to an EU official recently. And he said, well, he didn't think that either Boris Johnson or David Frost know yet if they're going to use Article 16. He thought they would try and push the EU as far as they could for as long as they could. And then at some point when they realize that you can't give any more ground, then they'll say, well, OK, do we invoke Article 16 or not? And maybe they haven't made up their mind yet as to whether they will do so. And I guess that sounds fairly plausible to me. So we'll just have to wait and see. But even if the Northern Ireland Protocol issue is resolved, and it will obviously be resolved one way or the other at some point in the future, we would imagine. So that's not the only uh, bone of contention in the, in the relationship between the EU and the UK, unfortunately. You write in a very interesting CR insight that came out a couple of days ago, Sam, called UK-EU relations, there is no steady state, that there are a number of other issues as well looming on the horizon which could cause problems in the future, even when the protocol issues are sorted out. Uh, financial services, uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism and, and data adequacy. Would you just like to say, why, why is financial services likely to cause problems, Sam? What's, Sam, what is the problem there? So as you say, I think the UK-EU relationship will continue to be tense uh, for a while, uh, I think until there is no more domestic political capital to be gained from fighting with Europe on the UK side and on the EU side until the UK is viewed as, as, as an ally rather than a, a competitive threat. So I've just tried to scope out some potential areas where conflict could emerge. And on financial services, I think we have an interesting uh, sort of case study in that the day one Armageddon of the UK leaving the EU single market for financial services never really occurred uh, in that no one really noticed. Financial services don't seem that badly affected. Uh, uh, there hasn't been the exodus of jobs and investment that some people predicted. But I think those predictions were based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the EU's approach to financial services post-Brexit and the fact that EU regulators at both the member state and EU level have adopted a softly, softly approach to luring and incentivizing uh, economic activity in the financial services sector out of the UK and into the EU's territory. So in the first instance, they've said, well, set up a subsidiary here, bring over some stale staff, a bit of capital, that's fine. You can keep doing a load of stuff in London. But over time, we want to see evidence of you bringing over more people, more functions, more capital. And the noose has started to tighten recently. We've seen um, the ECB writing to banks, asking them why they haven't brought over more people, whereas uh, asking them to account for some of their actions. We've seen the regulators start to take an interest in or crack down on different uh, processes that we're continuing to allow, for example, risk to be managed in London rather than within the EU, for, for, for traders in London still to communicate with clients in the EU because they had an EU representative on the call. And I think this squeeze is just going to continue and continue and continue. And the question then is, does this result in a political bust-up at some point? And I think it's possible because it's accumulatively this gradual chipping away at the UK's financial services base will eventually get noticed by more senior politicians and will eventually frustrate someone and it could accumulate in for example the EU eventually uh, rescinding one of the few equivalence decisions it made in respect of clearing houses so I think over time this could just potentially could grow and potentially yes it could uh, explode into something bigger. 
For a long time on the UK side, financial services companies hoped that the EU would grant them equivalents in more than the area of clearing houses and some of the other areas of investment banking and securities trading as well. That hasn't happened. Does that matter? And in fact, is the EU not making a mistake? Because maybe it can't actually, if it doesn't grant the UK equivalents, it can't withdraw equivalents. It hasn't got a threat hanging over us. Does the UK really need equivalents? Does this matter at all? I, I, I think you make a good point. And I do think that cynically speaking, the EU has given up on some leverage by not granting equivalents uh, on a broad brush basis to the UK and its financial services sector, because as you say, it can no longer threaten to pull it away if the UK does something it doesn't like. It would have been interesting to be having this Northern Ireland discussion right now if the question of equivalents and it being withdrawn was still hanging uh, over the UK's head. It's not there. The EU decided it didn't want that leverage. It just wanted to pursue its uh, its its strategic objective of, of moving EU-focused financial services activity to within its own territory. Um, and, you know, that, that, it was, that was its, it, the decision it, it took. But yes, you're right. It gave up some leverage in doing so. Right. Another area you mentioned in your insight, Sam, is um, data adequacy, where rather like uh, equivalence, a bit like equivalence, the EU has recognized, but in this case, the EU has recognized British rules on data as equivalent to its own. So Britain has, has adopted the GDPR uh, set of laws. Uh, but on, on the other hand, British government is talking about tweaking the GDPR so that it's more favorable to, to AI and various sorts of high-tech industries that the British want to nourish and nurture inside the UK. So is there, is there, is there a problem moving on on data because there the EU does have leverage, it has granted adequacy, unlike mm -hmm. on equivalents for financial services, and it could withdraw that adequacy. Would that be an awful problem if it did withdraw it? Yeah, so I think I think there's two issues here. The first is that just the adequacy agreement is on shaky ground politically, and this is something that Camino and I have written about for CER in the past. And despite the UK technically being compliant with all of the different things that would allow adequacy to be granted. The European Parliament is suspicious of adequacy agreements in general. The EU judiciary is suspicious. And you have activists within the EU who are likely or, or, or could choose to bring cases questioning the legitimacy of the arrangement. So it's just a shaky construct regardless. And then when you look at what the UK wants to do on data and its own objectives, it points towards there being some soft divergence from EU approaches in that the UK will likely cheat, tweak GDPR in order to make it um, more conducive to achieving the UK's economic objectives and areas that, that you mentioned, such as AI and the like. But you also have the possibility of the UK striking its own adequacy agreements, potentially with countries that don't also have the same relationship with the EU. So, for example, the US or Australia. And were this to happen, I just think political pressure within the EU would grow. There would be fears of so-called sort of data laundering, so the personal data of EU citizens moving to the UK and then being shipped off to the US under the UK's adequacy agreement. And this could bring the whole adequacy agreement uh, into question and see it falling away. And of course, if this were to happen, I think that it could create uh, a political flare-up between the UK and the EU. And it'll certainly be something that needs to be consistently managed over time. 
I certainly see problems looming there because already, even with the current British rules, before they've been tweaked, a lot of people in the European Parliament, the German Parliament, and indeed the European Court of Justice don't think British rules are very good the way they are now and aren't, don't really think we should have adequacy already. So I think that is a potential problem down the road. Finally, Sam, let's just touch briefly on something that is there perhaps in the UK has been much less focused on than financial services or data adequacy, which is the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism. This is the idea being pushed strongly by France, which will take over the EU presidency next year, that uh, imports coming into the EU, which have carbon effectively embedded in them, should pay a tariff unless they can show that they come from a country where the system for limiting carbon emissions is as good as the EU's own system. And I think a lot of the talk shows that this would apply to imports on things like aluminium, cement, fertilizer, steel, iron coming from Turkey, from Russia, from Ukraine, from China, but also from the UK, because is, is there not a risk that this could create a really quite a serious uh, ruckus between the EU and the UK? So I think, I, I think there's a possibility that the EU's carbon border adjustment uh, mechanism could uh, create uh, diplomatic and political problems uh, between the EU and the UK. And this is because the UK is really quite exposed um, to the mechanism. It trades quite a lot uh, in these areas, in the areas that you mentioned. It exports quite a lot of steel, aluminium to the, to the, to the EU. And, and the issue here is an interesting one in that the UK has its own high domestic carbon price, which would be taken into account uh, when the EU decides how much uh, money essentially to take from these importers. Uh, so, so, so we're not necessarily talking about a higher carbon price having to be paid on imports from the UK into the EU. But what you will have is a new bureaucratic border, a new compliance border, which has its own fixed costs. Importers of, say, iron from the UK into the EU will now will, would then have to register with a notified body, account for the carbon embedded within the import, take into account the UK's own carbon price, purchase carbon uh, border adjustment mechanism certificates and then surrender them at the end of the year. So you have this new regulatory border of sorts on top of the existing regulatory and customs border that's been erected by Brexit. And the UK does have options here. If it were to plug its own emission, if it was to link its own emissions trading system to the EU's, then it would probably be exempted from the measure. This is the case for Switzerland, Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland under the current EU proposal, but the UK doesn't want to do that. So you end up with this new regulatory border, this new trade border on top of the existing borders, which is inevitably going to cause some friction. But the thing that really makes this a tough one for the UK and could really put a strain on EU-UK relations is the question of how the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism interacts with the Northern Ireland Protocol. So we're right back to Northern Ireland all over again, because the EU has already said that the measure would be Northern Ireland protocol relevant. This means there will be need to be a discussion with the UK about how it would apply in Northern Ireland, if at all, how it should be implemented. And it could, under certain circumstances, lead to the CBAM measure, the CBAM border, being applied to goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain. So a hardening of the regulatory border within the UK. So this is, of course, going to create tension. Frost actually alluded to it in, in his recent speech. So, yeah, yeah, another thing that's going to have to be navigated. And I suppose my hope with all of this is it's, also, it's actually quite easy to just identify issues that could create problems in future. 
But I suppose the question then is, how is this managed? Because divergence between the UK and the EU is inevitable. There's inevitably always going to be some tension or other. But is it managed via perpetual crises or is it managed as part of a contained process, perhaps within the different committees and structures created by the trade and cooperation agreement with the heat taken out of it? And and I just don't know. But But my suspicion is that the political incentives on both sides at the moment mean that in the short run, we're just going to be jumping from one crisis to another. Yeah, just just to finish on the the CBAM. I mean, I think that uh, I'm very naive, perhaps, but it, it, it simply solved the problem as far as I can gather. British if Britain fused its own emissions trading scheme with that of the EU. Just solved the problem, including the problem in Northern Ireland. Businesses yeah. are very much in favour of this, but perhaps perhaps that's why why it's not happening. If businesses are in favour of something, the government doesn't always agree to put it mildly. But, and I, um, and it, it's quite a frustrating one as well, because unlike other areas where businesses are pushing for reconvergence, under which Frost will say, no, we took sovereignty is more important than anything else. We took the decision to exit EU structures. The emissions trading system and the potential linkage is actually one of the few areas that is identified in the trade and cooperation agreement as being uh, 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 as having the possibility of future linkage or future convergence. It, it says we will discuss convergence and future will discuss linking the schemes. And it's never happened. So it's it's sort of sui generis in that, in that you could have linkage there without calling into question the fundamental decisions taken by uh, the Johnson government. But, but even with that caveat, it seems that, as you say, the UK is not in favour of linking at the moment, despite everyone wanting it to. Yes, well, I think your your the other more general point you made is absolutely right, Sam. I think these 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 t- these tiffs these these arguments were going to go on for the foreseeable future. Uh, but let's let's let's. I think we all hope that uh, the tone at least moderates. But both sides have been quite uh, extreme in some of the things they've said recently. Frost talked of awakening from the bad dream of EU membership. Clement Bone, the France's Europe minister, talked of cutting off the electricity supplies to the Channel Isles, neither of which was particularly polite. And I think that from the EU's point of view, uh, a better relationship does require the UK to be a bit politer, to, to show more respect for the treaties it signed, and be a more serious and trustworthy negotiating partner. But from the UK's point of view, I think the EU itself has to decide whether it wants, as you write in your piece, whether it wants the British to be seen as competitors and rivals or allies in the facing of common strategic political, economic and climate challenges. And I think let, let's hope that both sides can do enough to keep the other side happy and so that we get a more constructive relationship for the, during the years. So that the, the arguments that will continue forever for, without question can be at least handled in a, in, a, in, a, in a more sober and moderate spirit than they have been until now. Fingers crossed. We're both crossing our fingers. Thank you very much, Sam. And thanks to everybody for listening to this Centre for European Reform podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.